Amen, Lord. You do. You do have our affection, Lord. We love you and we need you each and every day. Lord, I pray you'd give me the words tonight. May your spirit be here, be present. Spirit, I ask that you would speak your words. You are the one who changes us into the image of Jesus. As we read about Jesus tonight, Spirit, would you change our hearts? Would you make us look like him and think like him? Would we be in awe at how great he was? There has never been a human like him. Thank you that he was God, that he was able to pay the price for our sins, that he was able to live perfectly. Thank you that he was a law keeper, as we read about today, that he fulfilled your law, God, so that we might be freed from it, that we might live under the power of grace, a deeper call than even law. Help us to live in that spirit. Help us to live under your guidance and your leading and your teaching, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said, tonight we're doing John 7, so we're making our way through John bit by bit. Uh, this week I, I kind of mapped out the rest of this series, what it would look like, and I basically got till the end of the year. So that's what it looks like it's going to take, so about 10 months we'll have gone through John from beginning to end. Um, and I'm excited about this next section. And, and particularly this passage tonight, there is an excitement, and I love it because it's a topic I love to talk about, but I'm also grieved by it. I'm grieved thinking about the world as it is now in these days, and really in this day particularly as we come together to read John 7. John 7 and 8 are, are really connected. I feel like I need to give you a background as we're about to enter this next section. So the background of John 7 and 8, and they're, they're tied together, is really the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? It's a specific feast in uh, Judaism. It's called Sukkot. Okay? There's the word. That's probably what I'll refer to it as. The Hebrew word is Sukkot, which just means a booth. Okay? It's a booth. And so the Feast of Sukkot is upon uh, Israel at this time in John 7. And it is the background to what goes on in John 7 and 8. And it says so explicitly at the beginning of John 7. What's interesting is we know, if you know the content of John 7 and 8, there are two major rituals that attend uh, the Feast of Sukkot. And they are a water-drawing ritual, which we'll see in John 7, 37 to 39, right? Remember when Jesus says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me, right? And I will give them water, right? Jesus is going to bring that topic up again, just like he did in John 4 with the woman at the well. And of course, that connects to Sukkot through this water drawing ritual. And then the second is a light, a lamp lighting ritual, which of course in John 8, where, where is Jesus's heart, where is his mind going? I am the light of the world, right? So in these two rituals, you can see how closely the, the background of the Feast of Tabernacles is to John 7 and 8, because that's what's going on in Jerusalem. And Jesus is speeches, his, his teaching around water and light are definitely tied to this Feast of Tabernacles. Um, in between those two, we're going to talk about the adulterous woman, which is the end of the very last verse of John 7, and then the beginning of John 8, which um, if you've studied uh, 
textual criticism at all, right? Anything related to what was original to the text. John, uh, in, in the adulterous woman account, that's actually not in the original manuscripts. It's added later. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, oh, two weeks from now as well, what that means and what we can take from that story that clearly John did not originally write. That John did not originally write. But we'll have to ask ourselves, is it consistent with the Jesus we know? And I think, of course, the conclusion is, of course, but that sounds just like Jesus, right? Just like Jesus of John, to, to do that, to love that woman. But tonight, we'll start in John 7. We'll be going from verses 1 to 36. It's, it's not an awkward break, but a little bit. I'm cutting the story in half. I had to cut it somewhere. So it, otherwise, we'd be going through the end of 7. But um, that's what we'll be doing tonight. And I think it's, it's going to be good as we go through it together. So it opens like this in John 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay, so that is the background to this story. Right at the outset, we know they still want to kill him. There has been no um, calming of their, their qualms with Jesus, even though it's been probably six months at this point since Jesus has been in Jerusalem. Right? Until the Feast of Tabernacles. The last time he was in Jerusalem, remember, was during the healing of the lame man, which we, have, we discussed in John 5. And so Jesus has been gone, and now he's coming back, and they still are seeking to kill him. Right? The religious authorities, that's what John means here when he says Jews, the religious authorities are seeking to kill Jesus. So Jesus is avoiding Judea. He's avoiding it. He's staying in Galilee because it's outside of the jurisdiction that the, the Jewish authorities could find him and capture him, right? They, are, they have no authority there. So Jesus is avoiding it. And it says, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Now, that's the feast of tabernacles I was just talking to you about, okay? The feast of tabernacles has two backgrounds. You can look up in the Old Testament. The two backgrounds are in Exodus 34, the end of Exodus 34, and in Leviticus 23, and they bring up two different points. Okay, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, has two kind of primary meetings. One is agricultural, which is, it's, the, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Gathering. And what that means is, it was the final harvest of the season. Okay, and, and it wasn't wheat, and it wasn't barley or any of those grains, it was olives and grapes. So it's the last season for harvest. That's the agricultural meaning, and you find that in Exodus 34. The other reason is historical and remembrance. It's a remembrance reason. And the reason it's called the Feast of Booths is because all the Israelites would live in these small tent-like structures. And what was the purpose of that? It was to remind them of the 40 years in the wilderness. Okay? The 40 years in the wilderness in which they lived in tents. And all Israel was to live in tents for a week to remind them, to remind them of what their ancestors went through in the wilderness wanderings. Okay? That's the Feast of Tabernacles. So that is what's going on as Jesus is going to go back to Jerusalem. So that's verse 2. Verse 3 says this, Therefore, therefore his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. For you do these, uh, excuse me, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
for not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. So what's their point? Their point is to say this. Their point is to say this. If Jesus wants people to follow him, go put on a show, right? If you're going to make followers in this world, go to Jerusalem while the Feast of Booths is happening. This is one of the three holidays in which all Jews had to come to Jerusalem. So there is crowds everywhere. Everyone is making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If there's any time, Jesus, to make a show and get some disciples, now's it. Get up to Jerusalem, do some of your, you know, tricks, and people are going to follow you. I say that facetiously. I'm not saying that's necessarily what the brothers were saying, but it tells us explicitly they didn't believe in him. Now, what I think what that means is not that they didn't believe in him as in they didn't believe he had power. I think they did think that. I think not believing looks like the other not believing we've seen in John. They wanted a different Messiah. Go in and show people how you're going to take care of the Romans. Go in and show people what power you have, Jesus. And again, they think like the world. They think like the world. They're not thinking like Jesus. They're thinking of political power and overthrowing uh, their oppressors and getting rid of all the outside forces and making a nation for Israel. That's probably what his brothers are thinking. They don't believe in the type of Messiah that Jesus has said, that's the type of Messiah I am. Right? He's alluded to it already several times in the gospel that he is going to die. And so they're not believing in him. So Jesus responds to them in this way. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. My time has not yet fully come. And what time is he talking about? When Jesus used that terminology, what's he referring to? His death, his death, his crucifixion. That's right. Jesus knows that the timing is not right. He knows there will come a day when his hour will come and he will go up to Jerusalem publicly. And what will it cost him? His very life. But Jesus, Jesus says, no, my time is not yet here. He knows. He knows his time is not yet here. So I will not go up publicly. Because you, my brothers, any time works for you. You're of the world. Jesus is saying, I listen to my Father. And I do what he wants me to do. I'll go up when his timing is right. Not when it's my will or your will but when it is my Father's will for me to go up. And so he doesn't. He waits for the Lord. He waits for what the Father is going to tell him when he should go up. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So his brothers go up to Jerusalem along with all the other pilgrims, and Jesus is still in Galilee waiting. Not because he's afraid. Not because he doesn't want to lose his life. He's completely submissive to his Father's will. We know he's going to but because he's waiting for his father's word. He's waiting for the go from his father.
And so it says, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So he doesn't go up and make a big scene. He goes up just like any other Jew would. And what's interesting, it's just a reminder of Jesus' humanity. Right? He blends in with the crowds. He's just like them. Nothing makes him stand out. It's not like everyone sees him and goes, Oh, it's Jesus! He's just another person. The humbleness of that. I'm always struck by that when I think about that. Unassuming. Human. Truly human. He can go up and be unnoticed. And he is. And so he goes up as if in secret. And the Jews were seeking him. Here's the thing. Even though he is unnoticeable, he's not standing out, people have heard of him. They've heard about his miracles, and they've heard about the works he's been doing. And so it says they're seeking him at the feast. They're like, surely this Jesus is going to show up. Right? Surely he's going to show up. And so the Jews were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying... He is a good man. Others are saying, no, on the contrary. He leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. No one was speaking openly. There was whispers. It's rumors. Right? I'm sure we've all been in a situation like that. You know, you can feel something running through the room. But no one's really saying it. That's what's going on. There's all this expectation of Jesus. Where is he? Is he here? Where, where do you think he is? Do you think he's good? I, I, think he, I think he's kind of an awful person. I think he might be a false prophet. No, I think he's a good guy. I mean, he did some pretty cool things. But no one's saying it openly. Why? Because the Jews, right, what it said at the beginning of the passage, the Jews are seeking to kill him. So the Jewish rulers, these Jewish authorities, are, are seeking his death. And so no one's saying a public word. <clears throat> but when it was the midst of the feast, right? I told you this is a week-long feast. So sometime during the middle of the feast, in the middle of that week, Jesus goes up. And it says, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Openly in the temple. The Jews were astonished saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Right? They're astonished with Jesus' teaching because it's so eloquent, and it knows the scriptures so well, and yet Jesus wasn't schooled under the great rabbis of the day. He's just a simple man from Nazareth, right? a backwater place in, in Galilee. How does this man know what he knows? It's unfathomable to them. How does he know these things? And they're astonished. And Jesus says, My teaching isn't mine. But it's his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do God's will, his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. What's Jesus say? I did have a teacher. My father. He taught me. I didn't need to sit under the great rabbis. God himself was my teacher. And everything I learned to teach, I learned from him. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. 
but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus says, I'm not here to make myself great. This is almost like a response to the brothers again, isn't it? I'm not here to make myself great. I'm here for God's glory, not my own. Because I do my Father's will, and I, I only follow my Father's will. I don't seek glory from men, but from my Father. And he says, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? This is interesting. He says, Moses gave you the law, none of you carries it out. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because I think sometimes this passage gets misunderstood. The crowd answers him. He says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers him with dishonor. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? What's that mean? They're calling him insane. Right? Mm. You're paranoid, Jesus. Who's trying to kill you? Stop being crazy. You have a demon. No one's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered, I did one deed, one work, and you all marvel. What deed is he talking about? What's standing in the mind of these people? The healing of the lame man. That's what Jesus is referring to. That's what Jerusalem knows. The miracle he did the last time he was there. And in fact, the very reason they sought to kill him. Because he broke the Sabbath. And he encouraged another to break the Sabbath. And then he claimed that God was his father. Remember, and they sought to kill him in John 5. He's saying, I did one work. Healing of the lame man. And you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And because of that, on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What's Jesus' argument? Jesus makes an ethical argument. And that's what we are here to focus on tonight. What is Jesus' argument in this passage? What's he saying? Some people think Jesus is saying, man, you break the law all the time, right? You're breaking the Sabbath to circumcise boys, right? If, if a baby is born before the Sabbath, and then the day before the Sabbath, and then eight days from then, it will fall on a Sabbath that they need to be circumcised. You break the law to do that. And yet, I broke it one time. This is what some people say. Jesus is saying, I only broke it one time. You guys break it all the time. Here's why that doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus never admits to being a lawbreaker. He never admits to being a, a lawbreaker. He's a law keeper. Jesus doesn't break his father's law. Here's the argument in my mind. 
Here's how I make sense of it. The ethical argument is that certain things take priority over others. In fact, he's not even calling them lawbreakers. He's saying that they're right in what they do. The law of circumcision supersedes the law of Sabbath. In order to circumcise on the eighth day, we have to make that a priority over the Sabbath, and we do that. It's not breaking the Sabbath. It's the right thing to do. We prioritize circumcising on the eighth day over Sabbath. And so Jesus says what? If that supersedes the Sabbath, shouldn't me healing a whole man supersede Sabbath? If you're willing to take one member of the body and, and do according to the law on Sabbath, how much more for me making an entire body well on the Sabbath? That's Jesus' point. That's Jesus' point. And then we have to ask, what is Jesus saying when he says, none of you keep the law? I don't think he's referring to Sabbath. It's not saying you don't keep the law by breaking Sabbath. He's saying you don't keep the law because you're trying to kill me. Killing an innocent man is law-breaking. And that's what Jesus has been talking about. In fact, it's what he just said. Why do you seek to kill me? And then he says, none of you carry out the law of Moses because you're seeking my death, an innocent man. And then he goes on to his ethical argument. But think, you supersede Sabbath because of circumcision. Why are you so angry that I would heal a whole man on a Sabbath? If your argument works for circumcision, certainly mine works for whole body healing. That's Jesus' argument. Jesus isn't a lawbreaker. He isn't a lawbreaker. He's a law keeper. And the methods matter to him. We'll come back to that too. Jesus is saying, don't judge according to appearances, right? Don't just judge at the, like, the sight of it. I broke the Sabbath and that's all that matters. He said, think it through. Assess with righteous judgment, he says. Don't just judge according to appearances. It looks like I broke the Sabbath and that's all that matters. No, I was doing something more important. That's Jesus' argument here in John 7. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Which is hilarious to me. <laughs> they just said, you have a demon. Who, who's trying to kill you? Right? The answer is, well, obviously no one, right? He's crazy. And then, like, four, four verses later, they're like, wait, isn't this the one that they're trying to kill? <laughs> like, oh, I guess, I guess they were wrong. They're certainly trying to kill him. Wait, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? For some reason, Jesus is teaching in public, and no one is stopping him. And so the crowds think to themselves, wow, maybe even the Jewish authorities, they've reassessed who this man is. Maybe he really is the Christ. Even they believe. And then they say, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. 
And then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. He says, hey, yeah, you might know where I'm from. You might know the town I come from. You might know maybe my family lineage. But you don't know the full story of me. You don't know where my ultimate origin comes from. See, I know the one I came from, my Father, God. And you don't know him. You don't know him. So their response is they sought to seize him, for he said that they did not know him, right? So they seek to seize him. And yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet. There's no explanation for that in the scriptures. They don't explain Jesus alluding. They don't explain if it's supernatural or Jesus hiding amongst the crowds. It never says. Never said. But we do know this. Here's the divine perspective. Jesus' hour had not come. It wasn't time for him to die. There would be a day in which they would seek to seize him, and they would. But his hour was not here yet. So they can't seize him. He... he is not seized. Or they, they, he finds a way to avoid them. And it says this in verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? That's their argument. They're saying, well, if, the Christ, if this isn't the Christ, do you really think the Christ is going to do even more than this guy? Right? They're saying, well, he probably is the Christ. Even if another person came, could they do the type of thing? Could they multiply the bread? Could they heal a lame man? Man, these people haven't even seen what Jesus is going to do in the rest of John yet. Heal a man born blind. Raise Lazarus from the dead. Be resurrected himself. And says some of the crowds are starting to believe in him. But then the Pharisees, they heard. They heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They send in their guard to seize Jesus. And therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am you cannot the Jews are baffled by this. Now this time the Jews means the crowds, right? The crowds. The Jews are baffled. They said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Where I am you cannot come. They're baffled. And here's the irony, right? They say, is he going to go into the diaspora? The diaspora is the spreading of the Jews, right? There's the Jews in Israel, but the diaspora means that all the Jews that had been flung to the far corners of the empire, right? In, in Greek, in Assyria, in Babylon before them, the Persians. There, there were Jews all over at this point. And so the Jews outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee were called the diaspora. That's that word, right? The diaspora, because they were dispersed 
amongst the nations. And so they say, you think Jesus is going to go out from here and go teach the, the Gentiles, teach the Greeks? And go out with the Jews among the diaspora and start teaching the Greeks? Here's the irony. That's their assumption. Of course, they're wrong about what he's saying here. But the irony is, if you're a Christian reading this, you know, in 90 AD or something like that, at the turn of the century, you know that after Jesus died and resurrected, that's exactly what the church did. The church did go into the diaspora and started teaching the Gentiles that they had found salvation in Jesus. And John alludes to it here before it happens. The crowds think, man, is that what Jesus is going to do? And the answer is, even though they misunderstand what Jesus is saying, he's talking about his death, of course, right? The funny thing is that that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes and teaches the Gentiles so that they too might find salvation. Through his disciples, he teaches them. Right? He teaches them. We'll stop there for now and we'll come back to the water drawing right next week when Jesus speaks about the coming of the Spirit by moving water. But for now, we'll stop there. But I thought a lot about this because of the ethics of this passage, Jesus' argument, Jesus' argument about breaking the Sabbath, but he's saying, no, no, it's not that I'm breaking it, it's there's something more important. <coughs> there's something that takes priority over Sabbath-keeping, which is the healing of this man. That's what Jesus says. That's an ethical argument. And I was struck by that idea of ethics, listening to Jesus, who cares so much about law-keeping and cares so much about doing it the right way. And in this day and age, and particularly in these last few days, I was struck by that. I was struck by the reality of what that had to say to us tonight. I think we have to ask ourselves when we come to ethics is, does methodology matter? Or do the ends justify the means? Are there ends that are so important that anything we do to attain them is right? And I don't think I can ever come to the conclusion to say that's true. I don't think the ends ever justify the means. In fact, the Lord cares about the very methods we use to attain our ends. And I was struck by that because I've been hearing so much about using violence, using other methods that maybe are more effective than the peace and grace and mercy of Christ. And here's the truth. I expect that of the world. Of course the world thinks like that. I don't expect any different from them. The thing that has been appalling to me is how readily the church and Christians I have heard parrot that speech. And it breaks my heart. It grieves me to my core because Jesus is an ethical person. And how do I know that? Because I know the type of revolutionary Jesus was. He was a revolutionary. But he didn't do it through political power, which is what everyone wanted him to do. That's what his brothers told him to do. That's what the crowds told him to do. That's what everyone told him to do. And Jesus was a true revolutionary among humans. How? Because instead of revolting, he died. He chose death. He let them kill him. And he had the power to stop it. 
Remember what he says to Pilate in John. My kingdom is not of this world. For if it was, my followers would fight for me. Jesus could have called down legions of angels to fight for him. And to kill all his oppressors. And he chose not to. What's it say? He sat there like a lamb led to slaughter. Silent. And he died. That's the revolution. He didn't choose human ways. He chose godly ways. He didn't choose a kingdom like our kingdoms. His kingdom is the upside down kingdom where the greatest of all of us is the servant, is the slave. That's what Jesus' kingdom is. We have to, have to keep the ethics of that kingdom. We have to maintain it, or we have no witness for the world. And more importantly, we have no love for one another. Jesus takes the hard path. God takes the hard path. That's who he is. The question of evil and suffering in the world is a legitimate question of justice and where it is. Those are all legitimate questions. We know because the Bible deals with them extensively even if it doesn't answer all our questions about it. The topic is everywhere in the Old Testament about justice and where will it come from? Why is it missing? Throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the, in the prophets, it, it's a question that they reflect on often. And I've heard so many people, I've just been struck by so many things, you know, big Christians coming out and saying, you know, I, I don't really believe in Jesus anymore, you know people who would be known in the Christian community. I've just seen so many things like that, and I'm just struck. It's always around that question of evil and suffering. How do we respond to it? Why is it there? It was that question of, why didn't God just take Satan out at the beginning? He could have prevented all of this. Why did God even create us when he knew the evil we'd do? And here's the thing, it's a, it's a theology and an ethical lesson I felt I had to address tonight because here's the answer. Jesus uses good to conquer evil. We have to hold that intention. I will admit, there is occasion where God uses evil for his purposes. He doesn't cause the evil, but he uses it for his purposes. Occasionally, but it is not his main method. He could have vaporized Satan in an instant. He could do that to all of us for our evil. In a heartbeat. And occasionally we know, I'll give you two examples, when God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. And they're both pretty big examples, but they're very scriptural. The first is this. The entire book of Habakkuk, revolves around that topic of God using an evil people to judge. 
What's the book of Habakkuk about? It's about the Babylonians and evil people coming and judging Israel, judging Judah. And Habakkuk the prophet questions God on it. He says, how can you use a people more evil than us to judge us? And the Lord says, I will use them to judge you, but they also will be judged. They also will be judged. Babylon is raised up by the Lord to judge his people. That is said throughout all of the prophets. Throughout Isaiah, throughout Jeremiah, throughout the minor prophets. That is said over and over. We know God has explicitly said he used the Babylonians to judge his people. And here's the second. It's even bigger. It's even bigger than the Babylonians. And we know that God used this evil to accomplish his purposes. You can disagree with me on the other one. Maybe you'll disagree. I know you can't disagree with me on this one because it's explicit. It says so. What is the greatest evil that humans have ever done? We crucified the Lord of glory. The greatest evil humans have ever done was to crucify the Lord of glory. And in Acts 2, Peter says, it was to accomplish God's purposes. The greatest evil humanity has ever done was, was foreplanned by God to accomplish his purposes. That's what it says. We know that God occasionally uses that. But it is not his overarching way. It's not the way we are meant to live. I want to tell you that because I want to give you an even-handed theology. I want to be real about the evidence that's in the Bible. But the normal way for Christians to respond is summed up in Romans, Paul's great theological letter, right? The, the letter that lays out all of Paul's theology. And when he gets to the pragmatic section, right, when he gets to chapter 12, when he starts talking about practicality, how are you going to live in light of the fact? that Jesus has saved you, that his spirit has been poured out on you. How are you going to live? He says this in chapter 12, the very last verse. This is the cry of Christians. This is the way Christians have methodology. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a hard path. It's a long path. It's a costly path. And it is the right path. It is much easier and much simpler to overcome evil with evil. Humans try it all the time and they end up becoming the exact thing that they hate. The exact thing that they wanted to destroy in the first place. The oppressed becomes the oppressor. Instead, Christians are called to take the high path, the weighty path, the costly path. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why do you think, why do you think that the church was birthed in the blood of the martyrs? They chose not to fight. They didn't give up on the principle. They didn't say that Jesus wasn't the Lord. They still confessed. They still witnessed. They still spoke out against injustice. But they didn't fight to die 
They willingly accepted death because they knew that good had to conquer evil. You cannot conquer evil with evil because evil still exists in you. The only way to conquer evil is with good. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that. God could have taken the easy path. He could have just destroyed us. The flood. He, I mean, think about it. That was an option. I mean, not once he promised he wouldn't do it anymore. But at the time, man, we know God could have done that and did. Except for one righteous family. One man who had found his favor. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance, is what Romans 2 says. His kindness leads us to repentance. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is Jesus. Good conquers evil. Love wins, but it costs suffering. It costs suffering. It costs pain. It costs us something to conquer evil with good. But it is the way Jesus lived. There is no other way that is like Jesus. You cannot conquer evil with evil and expect to be like Jesus. You can't. Because he died. <clears throat> he died. Because it was the good path. That was what was on my heart to share tonight because the Lord cares not just about the ends, but by the very means by which we accomplish those things he cares about. The Lord wants his purposes to be accomplished, but he wants us to accomplish them in the right way. And we should stand out. Hear me clearly, church. We should stand out against injustice. The prophets are filled with crying out for justice in their society and in their communities and in their homes and in their own lives. We are called to stand against injustice. We have to do it in the right way, like Jesus. We have to do it in the right way, like Jesus. If we don't do it like Jesus, we dishonor Jesus. Even if we were to accomplish his ends and stamp out an injustice, you do it at the cost of not being like Christ. Now, I don't know who needs to hear that tonight. And I hope you will think about that, that Jesus took the hard path, the past, the path that ended with suffering and death because he was committed to doing good. He was committed to his principles, to the way of life that followed his father, that honored his father, that did good to people. May we all do the same. May we all do the same. May we all look like Jesus. The Jesus of John 5. The Jesus of John 7. Who even when everyone is telling him it's wrong, don't do it. He chose healing over his own 
glory. Over men giving him praise. Good job keeping Sabbath, Jesus. He was compassionate and merciful and healed a man who had struggled for 38 years. A man who would turn his own back on Jesus anyway. Jesus still chose that path. The Jesus of John 7 who said, Isn't making a whole man well on the Sabbath more important than the rituals and the rules? Isn't that priority that we do good to people? If circumcision is that important, surely a full healing is more important than that, isn't it? Jesus in John 7. I pray, I pray that the very spirit Jesus is going to talk about next week that's going to come because of his crucifixion that will be poured out, the Holy Spirit poured out on us, that he mentions next week when we keep going in John 7. I pray that that very spirit who still dwells with us today would lead us in the way we live and choose to live in our own ethics and in our own hearts and thoughts and minds about how we think and act, about how we talk about others, about how we think about them in an age of division and hate and evil, that we think about them for good. <clears throat> that we act towards others in good. That we choose the hard path, like Jesus did. Let me bless you tonight. Mm. Lord, thank you for each person in this room, each person on Zoom tonight, God. I pray that you would touch each one of them. Pray that you would soften all of our hearts towards others. Towards particularly, Lord, particularly towards one another as the church. That we would grieve with each other, rejoice with each other, that we'd be there and love one another. That is of utmost importance but also soften our hearts towards this world that is so committed to evil, conquering evil, that is so committed to, as Jesus said, to their deeds being evil. He said, why does the world hate Jesus? He said in John 7, because he testifies that their deeds are evil. Pray you'd soften our hearts towards evil people because Jesus taught us to do that. Jesus taught us to be the type of people who would heal someone who would betray us. Taught us the type of people who would take a Judas into our confidence, even though they're going to betray us. Who taught us to come to a world and become human and humble ourselves. Step down from his eternal glory and become human. He taught us how to humble ourselves like that. He taught us to come to our own, even though they're going to reject us, like his people did. He taught us to come to a world that hates him, because he loves it. Help us all to be those people. Help us all to have that type of heart. Lord, would you shape our hearts? Conform them to you. Would you make our identity look like Jesus, Holy Spirit? Please, renew us afresh. 
Jesus, would you pour your precious spirit on us that we might become like you? So that your Father, that you did everything to honor, that you did everything to glorify, you didn't seek your own glory, but you sought his, would you help us to seek his glory too, and not our own? Bless each person. May they feel touched this week by your spirit. May they find comfort where they need comfort, rebuke where they need rebuke, grace where they need grace, judgment where we need judgment, God. We're not afraid of it. We trust in your judgment. Unlike the world who's afraid of your judgment, we believe in it. We believe in discipline. We need it. Touch our hearts, Holy Spirit, and guide us this week. Bless us. Bless these people. Bless this church. May it grow according to the way that we choose to preach your word and live a life committed to you. That's my prayer for this church. May it be conformed to your image, Jesus, as your body. In Jesus' precious name and by your spirit's mighty power, we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. Thank you for being here. Love you all. Thanks for being here.